Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to the Fem South podcast, and I'm your host, Lee. Today, we're continuing our conversation about Christian feminism. This is the third and final part of our three part series on Christian feminism. I think we saved the best for last because in this episode, we talk about the LGBTQT community and the church. Uh, we talk about queer theology a little bit, and we just really get into the church's responsibility to take care of what has typically been a marginalized and discriminated against group. And this one is really meaningful to me because growing up in a Southern conservative state, I've watched too many of my friends be hurt by the church and by misguided and phobic people. And I can't ignore that or dismiss that and participate in any kind of organization that would willfully um, ignore the rights of so many people. So I hope that this podcast can open the conversation for the people of Christian faith to see that LGBTQT plus people can be Christian. Many of them are Christian and People who want to participate in their churches and in the Christian faith should be able to do so freely without fear of discrimination. And so today I'm so excited because I have with me my two friends, Reverend Ellen Sims, who is the pastor at Open Table United Church of Christ in Mobile, and Elizabeth Denham, who is the publisher of Franchise Woman and is an LGBTQT plus advocate and mother of a gay son. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. So why don't we get started with maybe you guys telling our listeners just a little bit about yourself. Ellen, if you'd like to go ahead and go first. Sure. Um, well, I am the founding pastor of Open Table, United Church of Christ. I um, grew up here in Mobile, but uh, went off to college eons ago and uh, have lived in various places, and along the way, I began as a teacher, and then um, in middle age, went to seminary and uh, became a clergy person, and uh, a little less than 20 years ago, my husband and I moved back to Mobile, where a United Church of Christ did not yet exist, and I founded Open Table which is the first UCC congregation in Mobile. It's a progressive denomination, not to be confused with Church of Christ, more familiar in this area. And, um, and our church has been very active in advocating for the LGBTQ community. Thank you, Ellen. Elizabeth, would you like to go next and tell us something about yourself? Sure. I, um, I grew up in Pensacola, 
Um, moved here when I got remarried. I have a blended family with five children. Uh, my son came out in um, when he was 16, right before his junior year of high school. And uh, we went through a tumultuous time between the school system, our church, our friends, weeding some people and things out from our lives. And I've always been uh, very pro in terms of advocacy for LGBTQ community. I have a lot of people in my family who belong to that community. It's always been very important to me. But when it's your own child, you become thrust into a situation where you are going to try to make the world a safer space for your child and others. Um, And so I I began becoming a much more vocal advocate here. I had kind of kept myself on the down low. Our church was not real affirming. A lot of the friends I had were very conservative. So you just try to get along when you move to a new place. But But when those things happen in your personal life, you realize the necessity for stepping up and advocating. And so as a writer, I, I've used that platform a lot. I've gotten involved with some groups um, around. I've, I've fought the school system for f- reducing anti-propaganda, <laughs> um, which created some very difficult relationships in our lives. And my son is doing great, and he's very happy, and he's coming back to do a gala that Rainbow Mobile is putting on. So, so he's doing great, and we want to make sure that other kids who want to come out in this area have that same opportunity. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Wonderful. I'm so happy to have you guys here. So the reason why we're doing a third part to this series, originally it was a two-part series, but I felt like it was really missing a voice for the LGBTQT community here. And that's a really important thing to talk about when you talk about Christianity in this area. And so before we get started talking about it, I wanted to read an excerpt from the book that you know this, the, the series is based on. This article is entitled Race, Class, Gender, Sexuality, Integrating the Diverse Politics of Identity into Our Theology. And the author is W. Ann Jaw. So, quote, feminist theologians then need to enter into a wider and more deeply textured conversation about what dreams we can dream together and what dreams can bring healing of our injuries to and with one another. In order to widen and deepen our feminist theological conversation, We must also be open to interdisciplinary learning and teaching. Given the complex world in which we negotiate, feminist theology cannot isolate itself. It must be in lively conversation with other creative creative areas that will give birth to feminist theological aesthetics. In doing so, I hope we unlearn much of our gendered, raced, classed, imperialist-based knowledge learn through the lens of those who have been segregated, marginalized, ghettoized, demonized, or terrorized, and come to realize that we already live in a queer world, and we desperately need to see, know, and live in this world otherwise. So I guess that then leads me to my first question. How important is it for a church to be supportive and affirming, and in what ways, Ellen, maybe you can talk about this a little bit more, in what ways are you doing this in your own congregation? It's an important question. Thanks for asking. Um, Because, as you've said, Elizabeth, there is um, not a generally a culture here in in general that is accepting of LGBTQ persons. And that's particularly true in churches here. Um, As as I've experienced indirectly through my parishioners, there are churches who, I would say every church, um, gives lip service to welcome. And every church says, uh, 
everyone is accepted here. And yet LGBTQ persons over and over and over again are um, disappointed when they understand that that doesn't include them, or it includes them only if they are silenced, if they pass. And so uh, it was important for my congregation to write what we call an open and affirming statement. And if I may, I'd, I'd like to read that as an example. This was developed by the congregation just as we were getting started by, you know, the first few people who agreed to go on this uh, crazy journey with me and creating a new church. So one of the um, one of the things we wanted to be clear about is our affirmation of LGBTQ persons, and this statement appears in every worship bulletin. Um, we are proudly proclaiming it on all of our materials, our website, and so forth. And so I'll read our open and affirming statement. Open Table is an open and affirming congregation that affirms the worth and dignity of every human being, extending extravagant welcome to all persons. We affirm lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender persons in particular and assure them full inclusion in the life, leadership, and ministry of our congregation. We acknowledge the suffering they have endured in the context of the larger society. We aspire to develop an increasingly sensitive and informed understanding of God's good gifts of human sexuality, gender, and relationships. We believe that all people are created in God's image and thus are loved and blessed equally by God. Um, I, I want to go ahead and mention that that last line reminds me, when we put this in the context of God's image, that, um, and this is, I think, important to women as well as LGBTQ persons, that the imagery we use for God is inclusive and diverse and not even necessarily uh, human or anthropomorphic. And so there is much in biblical scripture about God as in the fire or God in some non-anthropomorphic image. And there are images of God as female. And so we are very careful about inclusive language. We use a hymnal that is entirely gender inclusive, and we strive to open up that imagery for God. I think that's wonderful. I mean, that's exactly one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the importance of language and imagery. Um, you also said another thing that I really, I wrote down a couple things because okay. this is the, my first time hearing your open, not open, open and letter, affirming statement. Open uh -huh. and affirming statement. Um, and then you said, acknowledge the suffering that has yes. been caused yes. by the church. Yes. That's important. Can you talk it a little is. bit more about making the decision to put that line in there? Well, sadly, I think the church is the largest purveyor of misinformation, misunderstanding, uh, um, harm to LGBTQ persons, certainly in this part of the country. And as a church, we have to be aware that we're attached to that harm and then all 
the more reason for us to try to mitigate against that and be especially careful and caring with folks who come to us having been wounded by churches, and we hear those stories. And um, as the pastor of folks who have been terribly wounded by churches, um, it, it breaks my heart and it inspires us as a church to rise to a level of compassion and uh, be part of a healing process and, and, and indeed get out in the streets and advocate for LGBTQ rights as we did in the marriage equality movement here, as we have done in founding uh, the nonprofit organization uh, now separate from Open Table called Prism United, which Elizabeth uh, referred to just a bit ago. We, we have uh, seen as part of our ministry a role in uh, supporting folks, not that they need to come to Open Table for their healing, but if they do, if, if there are Christians who have not found a church, we want to be there for them, but we are also not trying to use them to build our church, but rather to be supportive in organizations outside our church and in general, just to be good neighbors. I, I, the, I love your affirming statement. I think it's critical. I love extravagant used, extravagantly affirm or accept, or I'm not sure what it exactly said, but that that is not something LGBTQ people experience in church on the regular basis. And we we were in a church when my son came out that was not affirming or accepting. And um, it was a Methodist church. And when he came out, I went to the youth director and I went to people he would be in contact with personally. And I said, I need to know where you are on this because I'm not putting him in a place that could harm him. And especially religiously, because that's such a fundamental part of, of your identity. People don't always assume that someone who identifies as LGBT also identifies as a Christian. And that could not be the furthest thing from the truth. Um, the youth director said, if anybody ever says anything or does anything to your child, I will scratch their eyes out. And I was like, great, that's what I want to hear. But every person that I talked to who, who were people who worked at the church, but not the pastor, said, don't tell the pastor. He is not affirming. He is not accepting. Don't tell the pastor. And I was horrified by that. And for a while, we tried to stay and be, my husband said, let's just stay and be the voice of change, which I'm normally a very big advocate of. However, church is, is a place that's supposed to be your sanctuary. It's supposed to be the place that you kind of reset for your week. It's a community of supportive people, theoretically. And we were not feeling that. So Luke and I would sit in the pew and probably, I mean, I have five children. We all felt the same way. And every time we would be preached at about love or unconditional love, we would be mad because we knew that wasn't the case. It was conditional in that church. And that is harmful to a child who identifies and to his mother. You know, the worst thing you can do to a mother is hurt their child. So it, we ended up realizing when people started turning around and walking away from me in church because I had advocated for inclusion in schools, it became a very public thing. We decided to leave. My husband saw it for himself and said, how long has that been happening to you? I'm like, for a year. So he said, we're not going back. So it, it's critical. Everything that Ellen was saying is, is putting that statement in the public forum. I, had, I went to um, our new church as an Episcopal church, and we're very happy there. But I went and interviewed the priest because I wanted to make sure we weren't going to be in that situation. And one of the reasons it's so critical is because not only does it cause harm if you're not included, but it also 
limits your ability to live a normal life. Because when Luke, Luke wants to get married and have children as much as any of my other children do. And he talks about it probably more. And if we had stayed in that church, the uh, Methodist church, he wouldn't have been allowed to get married in that church. And we would have had to change churches during a time that's supposed to be the happiest of his life. So I wanted to be in a place where the next logical progression of his life, whenever that may be, was available to him. And it didn't become a negative experience because he had to move his life. So we're in a church now where he, you know, people love us and, you know, pounce on him and his boyfriend when they walk in and tell him how cute and wonderful they are. And they feel loved and they know whenever Luke ends up, he's 19 now. So hopefully not anytime soon. But when he does get to the point in life where he wants to get married or have a family, he will be welcome to participate in the sacraments just like everybody else. That's wonderful. I think it's so important that you make that public statement right up front. So, so there is no stringing somebody along. I mean, we talked a little bit about that before we started recording. Can you say a little bit about that, Ellen, where you've seen people be strong along thinking that they were in an affirmative church, but then not really? Yes. Um, I'm, I want to also, though, just piggyback on the last point about the open and affirming statement and say it is important to us not only because of how we present to, um, to other people, but the development of that statement. Our denomination is open and affirming, and so our denomination could just have said, you know, here's this little uh, line you need to add to your bulletin. We've done this for you. No, there was, in starting this church, there was this um, method of getting everybody who was a founding uh, member, if you will, to, and, and we went through, I can't remember how many weeks, but it took weeks for us to wordsmith uh, what was on our hearts and in our heads. And it was one way to make sure that we were all on the same page. You know, people can say, oh, yeah, I'm, we wanted to make sure <laughs> through careful crafting of that little paragraph that we were truly in agreement and would continue to support those values. So I often have people who come to me personally, um, call the church office for an individual appointment to see me before they ever visit Open Table. And when they do that, they are wanting to hear me uh, be very explicit, and they'll ask me questions. Do you really mean this? Do you really mean I could actually be a leader in this church, a lay leader? Do you? And so I understand they're, um, that they're dubious because, and then they tell me these stories, I was in this church, and um, I'm thinking especially of um, a, a transgender woman who came to me and, um, again, told me a story of her, her experience in a church where she was not yet out and was telling me about um, she was considering sharing with her pastor and so forth. and. I, I knew it was not going to go well, but she, of course, needed, I, I didn't say that to her. I mean, I, I, I couldn't know for sure, but I, I knew she was going to experience some heartbreak and just real disillusionment with her church. And absolutely, uh, this pastor kind of led her along and over 
weeks or a few months, finally was very explicit in saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, and we're working on changing you, basically. So I hear those stories. That's so interesting that you say that because you're you're saying that most people in these situations do what we did, which is interview the priest or the pastor or whoever's in charge because you don't want to go through that again. And you do need to hear someone say those words, which is why your your public statement is so critical. I don't think that our church has that. Um, but when you interview him, he he will affirm that you can and are expected to mm-hmm. participate and lead and do different things. But when you talk about the trauma and the recognition of the suffering, uh, my family got confirmed in the Episcopal Church last year. And one of the things my dad asked, um, they had a little question and answer session with the bishop the day of confirmation. And my dad said, what do you say to people who have LGBT family members or who are in that community? What do you say to them about the church or inclusion or the, the Bible says, you know, you're, you're horrible or an abomination or whatever. The first thing he did was he said, I'm going to stop right here and just tell you, I am sorry for the abuse the mm. church has put on you. And it was incredibly meaningful to everyone in my family because my parents who've been Methodist for 70 years, more plus, switched denominations because of my son. We moved as a family. So for him to say, I am sorry that that has happened to you because that is abusive and it is traumatic when you have to leave your church so that your family can be loved and included. So I think recognizing the suffering is huge for people who have felt betrayed by a place that's supposed to love them unconditionally. Right. And, and you'll hear those, those pastors, those other churches saying, we love you, we love you, and, but it's we love you, but we hate the sin. Mm-hmm. I heard that phrase so many times, and it just makes me cringe. Love the sinner, hate the sin. And they think it's a nice thing to say. And they think it's a nice thing to say. And mm-hmm. it's so far from being a nice thing to say. In fact, it's very offensive. It's condescending. I got into a discussion with a, a distant family member about that. And he thought he was hes like he was a youth minister. And he said, I have gay children in my youth and they love me and I'm nice to them. And I said, well, if that's what you're saying, that's kind of a low bar to step over. I'm nice. And he didn't understand just how insulting and condescending love the sinner, hate the sin is. And when we left our church, I wrote our pastor and I told him why. And I said, everybody I talked to told me not to tell you. And he said, well, we just disagree theologically, but I can understand why that might not feel like love. And I didn't write back. That was, I just needed to tell him why, but that wasn't love. You know, that's not love, love the sinner, hate the sin, you know, it, because when you view and my mom hates it when people say, well, I don't judge, but, you know, I don't judge anybody. And my mom always replies with, why would you judge this? It's not a sin. Like you're starting from an, a, a supposition that it's sinful and doing us a favor by not judging. And I haven't gotten that far in conversations with people necessarily, but that really offends her when people say, I'm not, I don't judge. Well, why would you? <laughs> Why yeah, would you judge any other human? Point. You know, I, I think it is a very good point that she puts it that way. So, Yeah, I think that is incredibly important. And that leads me to the other thing that you said that struck me as important, that being affirming is also understanding that God's, goods get, God's good gifts, man, I can't even say that, God's good gifts apply to everyone. And can, can you read that one little spot one more time? We acknowledge the suffering they have endured in the context of the larger society. 
we aspire to develop an increasingly sensitive and informed understanding of God's good gifts of human sexuality, gender, and relationships. Yes. I mean, the fact that you're even recognizing human sexuality, because I think then you can probably get into churches who are, you know, maybe on the bandwagon of being accepting, but they don't want to talk about sexuality, right? right. right? They don't want to allow a person to have and display sexuality. And we want to celebrate that. You know, that's part of our humanity, and we're naming it as a gift from God. Well, some of them will do that in, in a negative context. There was a church, um, and I don't even remember which one it was, that disallowed LGBT youth from volunteering with the children's ministry. And I was having a discussion with um, a friend about it, and she said, well, I kind of think that's fine, because I want to be the one to tell my child about that, whatever that is. You know, and I said, do you think, a, do you think Luke's going to walk into a children's ministry and say, I want to have sex with boys? I mean, that's, that's not a reality. And so I said, what you're doing to my young high school child is sexualizing him without my permission. Why do you think you get to put sexuality on him that he may or may not have claimed or may or may not have made public yet and certainly would never discuss with elementary school age children? You know, I mean, so it, it put it in a context of sexualizing my child that was inappropriate to me. And I don't think people who say those things I want to be the one to tell my child. I don't want them to know about gay people until they're of a certain age. That's sexualizing my kid. And that's not his entirety. That is not who he is or what defines him. That is a part of who he is and what defines him. And he should be able to claim that. Not. And I said, you know, all you have to do, my kids asked when they were watching Glee when they were young. And they said, what about that? And I said, well, sometimes boys, like girl, boys and girls like girls. And they were like, oh, okay. Because they were not sexualized humans at that age. And that's all they need to know. And so the adults are placing sexuality on children who think they're protecting them. They're actually not. So I think that that is the point that we probably could bring up a little bit more, that you don't get to do that to my kid. Wow. I was a little, I find it offensive. Yeah, and I feel like the conversation keeps coming back around to what is considered, I guess, a deviant sexuality. Right. And then when we were watching that, or you, you told me I should watch Matthew Vine's YouTube video, and I did, and it was really informative. Um, but it, something that kept striking me was, is not only was he having to like go through this song and dance of explaining and justifying, which I found uh, sad. So in other words, he just kept having to justify. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, the, the uh, stereotype, especially I think with gay men, is that they're very promiscuous. You, you had the 80s where sexual freedom for gay people was coming about and they got labeled as people who just had random sex or hooked up at one night stands. And I don't think that represents the majority of the gay community or the LGBTQ community. I think most of us as humans, and that's, I have a blog where I interview members of the community to talk about anonymously what their hopes and dreams are and what they want for their lives. And we all want the same things. We want a family. We want to be loved. We want a career where we can express ourselves and who we are. I mean, the humanity of it gets lost in that discussion. And he did a good job, I thought. He's a wholesome, that's one of Luke's favorite words, he likes a wholesome boy to date. Um, and that's something that that's, should be more normalized in, in the context of our conversation. You know, they, people, everybody, whether you want to get married or not, you want a relationship that's loving and affirming and supportive, however that looks in your life. And just because you belong to one group doesn't mean that you fit a stereotype. None of us fits a stereotype. 
I'm sure every single one of us, even though we're pretty regular people that fit into a mainstream mold, could be stereotyped, you know? Um, and I think we're all white women in Alabama. People could make a lot of assumptions about us based just on that. And I don't think we fit into that mold of the stereotypical white woman in Alabama. So I think bringing context to conversations like that is critical. And letting the more people have begun speaking out and the more accepting and affirming churches become, the less those stereotypes are going to be prevalent, I think. I have my own little theory about why some churches and individuals focus on the sin of homosexuality. And I think it's because it is, speaking as a straight woman, a sin I will never be tempted to commit. Mm -hmm. And I think the majority culture can focus on something that they might be impervious to. I mean, fewer people than, than we think, but um, that that is a way to hold up as um, a taboo something that those in, um, in, in power, in churches, in the culture in general, can say this thing is uh, destructive to our community, this thing is sinful, and feel that um, almost like as a scapegoat, we can send that out and eliminate that and feel pure ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an, it's an easy sin for me not to commit. And let me be clear, I don't think it is a sin, but I'm just being facetious here right. and using other people's language. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is, too, our discomfort generally in talking about human sexuality this, as you were saying, forces us to talk about sex, you know. Right. And uh, so that, that's a piece of it as well. But um, I, Well, and I think that conversation as a parent of a gay child becomes even more critical. We have three children in college, one in high school and one in middle school. And we talk about sex and sexuality and relationships with all of them. And we actually met with um, a married couple of men to come and kind of be mentors and talk to our family and talk to us about things that we might not consider as straight people. How do we need to talk to Luke before he goes to college? What kind of things do we need to talk about in terms of having safe sex? What higher, they're, they're still a higher risk group. But most of these kids don't even have that. Like we sat Luke down and we said, here are some things you need to be aware of. Here's why it's critically important. Here's why it's okay to ask if somebody has been tested. I mean, we've had this with all of our children, but his was a little bit different because he is in a higher risk group. And there aren't as many models of healthy relationships that are public. They're out there, but you have to seek them out. We were lucky that we found these two men that have become friends of ours, and they offered to come and just say, let's talk and let us talk to Luke, because you can't totally relate to his experience as hard as you try, and we can't. So to help Luke understand what is PrEP, what is safe sex, what, you know, they're at higher risk for um, hepatitis and, and HIV and all those things, and being able to talk about sex and sexuality especially for LGBT kids who may not. I was actually watching the Fosters the other day and they they had a class, a sex ed class just for LGBTQ kids because a child had said, why don't they talk about gay sex and sex ed? You know, and that's not something that most of us as straight people consider, but they have questions even about mechanics. You know, (laughs) every parent's uncomfortable with that. I think it's not my favorite conversation, but we talked to look about predatory men. What if some professor hits on you? We have the same conversation with our daughter. But we want them to be armed and prepared and don't just believe that just because somebody says you're cute and smart and wonderful that they really believe. 
you know, they might be trying to use you. I mean, so I think these conversations have got to become more accessible to these kids and the parents need to be willing to, to if they're not willing to do it, find someone who will or research and educate themselves or find a mentor for these kids because they need to be safe and they need to feel like there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about Christian feminism in the South. I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's, I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so... I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the Black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also, I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. Welcome back from the break. You're listening to the Fem South podcast, and this is Lee. I have been talking with my two special guests, Reverend Ellen Sims and Elizabeth Denham. And we're talking about Christian feminism, but more specifically, we're talking about the LGBTQT community and how the issues within the LGBTQT community intersect with Christian feminism and Christian theology and how we all need to be working together to rectify the injustices and marginalization of these particular groups within Christian faiths. So let's continue with our program. Maybe this is the, uh, such an obvious point, but I also have to acknowledge the problem with how we read Scripture, especially in the Deep South. And our literalism, our biblical literalism, and our lack of understanding about cultural context is such an impediment to getting past this idea that the Bible condemns homosexuality. And so uh, I think biblical literacy and um, uh, having a, a respect for Scripture, but also recognizing it's culturally conditioned and sometimes the Bible is just wrong. Nobody Mo ever considers that. <laughs> no, nobody usually says that in church. But, you know, certainly, I mean, we, we can think of many examples, certainly many stories where, I mean, think about how dysfunctional families are in, in the Bible. And our, we're not using Scripture appropriately if it's... Um, if we're taking things literally, uh, we're taking things out of their historical context, and uh, human sexuality is uh, a very important... Uh, our understanding of human sexuality has been damaged by sloppy, prejudicial, ignorant approaches to reading Scripture. And I think, you know, the Matthew Vines thing was the first time I had ever seen an inclusive option for interpreting the Bible. And um, for me, I wanted to hear somebody who had done that research because I wanted to be able to say to people why there are inclusive options. And I do think 
people don't talk about the historical context. They don't talk about the fact that the word homosexual wasn't coined until modern era. So the the use of that word is a is a human interpretation that, that someone put in there that didn't mean what it means to us now. So I think that your you know literacy is incredibly important. And one thing that bothers me is that when when I've shown that research to people or many people have published different things about inclusive interpretations of the Bible. I have had people who just read a couple of words and say, well, I don't agree with that. And and to me, if you know there's an option for inclusivity, why would you reject that? Because if you have been informed that there's a possibility that the Bible doesn't say what you have been taught that it says, and you reject that, now it's on you. Now you can't use the Bible as an excuse because there is a way to interpret it that is inclusive to all and should be at least considered. You know, the people who just say, I'm not even going to read it because it goes against what I've been taught my entire life. Well, um, I appreciate what you were saying, Elizabeth. I actually, as a pastor, surprisingly, don't push the Bible on folks who've been damaged by it. And um, I think um, for me, it is a rich, essential resource for my spirituality, but I don't assume that it is for other people. And so for people who who are sensing that there is a God of love buried somewhere in those pages, I certainly want to help them find (laughs) where those passages are and let them feel uh, supported by a faith community that does lift up the love. Mm -hmm. But I, I also so appreciate how misused the Bible has been that, that I, um, uh, I'm happy to talk with people and engage on what some people call the clobber passages. And I'll uh, mention a book a friend of mine wrote. uh, Her name is Candace Chalu Hodge, and the name of her book is Bulletproof Faith. Um, I think it's out of print, but you can still probably find it online. But she, she addresses the half dozen or so clobber passages well, but she also brings, and not an exclusively Christian, approach to spiritual resources so that LGBTQ people who have been wounded uh, not only have a different understanding, perhaps, of some of those scriptures that they were clobbered with, but how do they develop inner resources to deal with that harm? And so she accompanies not only her exegesis of those passages uh, with uh, a new interpretation, but she also talks about, you know, different ways of meditating and different ways, and they're not exclusively Christian, of shoring up <laughs> the spirits of folks who've been damaged. I think that's critical, too. And I'm not saying we need to force those interpretations no, on people no. either. Um, but when they bring the argument to you, at least you feel a little bit more armed with knowledge, like here's a way you could look at that differently. But I have tons of friends. I have people in my immediate family who have turned away from the church and religion because so many people do bad things in the name of it. It is hard to cling to it. It's, I'm one of the few left in my family who, who do. And it's not been easy for me either. I mean, switching churches, you, you know, we've been up and down in attendance and participation. And a lot of that's driven by me because you get tired. You know, and that's not to say I don't have faith outside of a church, but you don't necessarily feel like going <laughs> after you've been through the ringer like that. So I think that you have to give people the space to figure it out. And I totally get a lot of my family and where they're coming from. And because people do 
ruin it for other people. So being able to distinguish between those and find wherever your space is that's healthy for you is, and it may not be in church, you know, and that's, that's, and then you get judged for that, (laughs) you know? I mean, that's, there's, it's hard to escape that, that judgment, no matter what you do, I think. So it kind of makes me want to ask them this question. Do you think homophobic and transphobic people are just using the Bible to justify their fears? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Um, Luke had, at, at his high school, when we went through the whole conflict over inclusivity and, um, not having anti-LGBT books at school or reading requirements. I met with the principal once a month for a year. He met with the principal just about once a week. And by the end of it, we had all developed a a strong relationship. And the principal kind of came around, I think, in his point of view. And Luke said, Mom, I just don't think he knew any gay people before me. Mm -hmm. And he would talk to Luke. And to his credit, he would say, well, how do you feel about this? Or what do you think about that? And he ended up writing him a really great recommendation when he was applying for an LGBTQ scholarship, which was amazing to me. But I think that is a lot of the barrier. People don't take the time to get to know people on a human level and say, what do you think? How do you feel? What was your experience? Have you ever experienced discrimination? How did you feel? I interviewed a boy who tried to kill himself three times before he was 19 because his mom told him he wasn't right with God because he he was a gay kid and he was black. So he felt like he had a double whammy. He said, I can get killed for walking in a white neighborhood or for holding a hand with a boyfriend. And that's, that's how he lived his life. And I said, where do you find community? He said, I don't have one because of all of those things. My church rejected me. My family rejected me. My friends rejected me. I don't know many people who call themselves Christians who would not feel terrible for this kid or some level of compassion. And I think when we can reach that base level of feeling, then you have some kind of hope for an evolution in, a, in an individual. At least I hope. Well, and I wonder then, how can we heal the homophobia and the transphobia? I mean, I was just reading some of the bills that are being passed against trans people in Alabama right now. And when I read the language, I, I want to say, well, they're just ignorant. And yes, they definitely are ignorant, but there's something else. It's it's just, it's, it's a willful ignorance against the harm that these things, that all of these bills in this legislature is going to cause and inflict on these individuals and their families. Like, how do you break through that? I think, um, unfortunately, sometimes it's time that normalizes the, the differences that people haven't been exposed to before. So in that since I guess time is on our side, but that's not a very swift mover. And um, yeah, I wish... You know, in terms of institutional change, I think it is a lot of time. I also think that the, the movements that have happened probably since the 80s have helped the conversation. The groups like Prism United and Rainbow Mobile are becoming much more visible and getting the community to participate in hanging flags for Pride Month and that kind of thing. I think that helps on an individual level. I just think talking and being willing to. You know, when you're, when you're in the presence of someone who says something racist and you don't say anything and then you feel like you beat yourself up for it for months and you think, I should have said, but what do I say that is well-received and how do I not offend? And Because it doesn't do any good to condemn somebody. You're not going to change anybody's heart. And so I had this, this experience with my eye doctor and he, um, he has you read out of the Bible to, to check your readers 
which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> like some people might not love that. But um, so then he said he went to the movies and he saw one of the movies about, a, I can't remember which one it was, but one of the LGBTQ movies that came out last year. And he said, I had to get up and leave. They kissed and I just couldn't even watch it. And I'm sitting there thinking, how am I going to handle this? Because I'm this public person with my advocacy, but I really need my contacts, but I don't want to turn him off or make him less inclined to listen. So how, how am I going to address this with him? So finally I said, well, I have a gay son. Oh, well, you know, I don't know why I feel that way. I said, I'll tell you why. Do you know any gay people? Well, no, not really. I said, that's why. Next time you'll stay a little longer. You know, next time you'll be more familiar. It's easier when you're familiar with your, have a friend or, and I, and so I started telling him the statistics on suicide and depression rates in LGBT youth, which are incredibly high. And I start, I told him the story of that boy who tried to kill himself. And I said, and he said, oh, well, that's awful. And so I told him about the blog that I had where I interviewed people. And he said, you know what? I have a trans person coming in next week. Can I give him your contact information? And the next thing I know, he's feeding me. I never heard from that person, but the idea occurred to him that maybe these people go through something that he had never thought of. And I don't know if it made any long-term impact or not, but I was finally able to come up with a way to reach him without turning him off or making him angry. And he ended up calling me on my cell phone after that. And he's like, my daughter's a sociologist. I think she'd enjoy talking to you. So he, he became someone who was, whether or not he changed his perspective, he was willing to listen. And so I think if we can reach people in a way that hits their heartstrings or makes them understand what people are really going through on an emotional level, hopefully that individual, at least awareness, will translate into something more institutional down the road. Thank you for handling that so beautifully, Elizabeth. Well, I wanted to jump up and leave, but I didn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, those are, those are situations that are so tough. Because I think we all get in situations where we feel like saying, are you, are you serious? Did you just seriously say that to someone you don't know? But usually if you say, I have a gay son, then they immediately try to backtrack. But then, because they're feeling bad, you can sort of get in their heads a little. That's a little bit of that Christian supremacy here, that people will just say things, making assumptions all the time. And then as soon as that assumption is challenged, they pull back and whisper, you know, the mm -hmm. whispering of something that they are not really quite sure. So it's, it's interesting dealing with that. But yeah, I think that's a lovely approach. I mean, and that's another... I guess that's kind of an answer to the question, and I'm sure you get asked about, you know, being in the church with your son, like, why stay in the church? We asked this on our last podcast of Christian Feminists. Why stay in the church then if it's so difficult? Well, for us, I mean, we, we, I have been raised in a foundation of faith. My husband was raised as a Baptist and remarkably is is on the board of prism so he he did not cling to his childhood alabama southern baptist roots um which is which shows you that people can evolve and change from what they were taught he was not taught to be accepting and inclusive and over time he learned and he's done everything he's luke's stepfather he's done every single thing you would hope that a parent would do he's loved him unconditionally nothing changed for him um but i think when you're raised in that foundation of faith you you want to keep it you know it it, it F fulfills you it it gives you hope and and sometimes peace and through struggle and you know i mean all of the things that it's supposed to do but i think you have to find the right church and you have to be willing to say i'm not going to be in a place that doesn't fully not just tolerate which is a word i hate but embrace my family and so when you find that and ellen has provided a great space and um 
we wanted a youth group for our kids, so we went to the a larger church. But we were not going to stay somewhere that didn't have that for my entire family because even the siblings, you know, if they had stayed in the Methodist church because they grew up there and they loved it and they knew other kids, it's still damaging to them because someone is attacking their, condemning their brother. So it doesn't just affect the person in the LGBTQ community. But I think when you've grown up with that and you want it, you and, and the community of when you find the right community, it is good for your kids. You get support. You get spiritual fulfillment. You have youth groups where other people of like mind are are encouraging and, and supporting your children. And so if you can find that safe space, those are the things that benefit. And whatever they choose to do as they go off in life, they'll have that foundation as long as we're in a, a non-damaging church. So I guess since we're talking about Christian feminism, then maybe some of our listeners might be wondering why we're veering into queer theology. Uh, but I think that, that it's incredibly important. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about this, Ellen, but the connection between feminist theology and queer theology. So obviously, um, we have some commonalities of marginality and some really generative theology is in the last century has developed because folks who've been on the margins have found their voice voices theologically and that's included um, womanist theology feminist theology um, and and queer theology uh, among others and so I'm not sure that I, I think of those groups of theologians as being supportive of one another, but they have a peculiar lens. Each, each has a particular lens. I'm not sure that one has necessarily birthed the other so much as maybe being more like siblings. And, um, but one could certainly argue that feminism has a longer history than out uh, LGBTQ movements. So um, all of that is to say that those kinds of theologies allow Christians, I believe, to understand God, um, to understand what it means to be fully human, to grapple with the big questions of life, why do bad things happen to good people, etc., uh, through particular experiences, and to then do what all good theology does, and that is not for this to be simply an intellectual enterprise, but there is activism behind that. There is a, um, there are ideas and there are insights that can then galvanize groups and give them a spiritual support in doing so, and that kind of going to back back to what you were talking about earlier and you were we were wondering why do people even stay with the church that has been so obviously harmful and i think there are some ways in which the church still sometimes gets it right and has some uh spiritual resources knows how to whether we do it or not but but have the, we have the capacity for building community, loving community, and um, serving one another, even as we go out on, into the world and challenge, uh, which is what Jesus did, challenged imperialism, challenged the empire, challenged the givens, and said, 
know the least of these is God's favorite. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was. And I, I think that when you have, when the church does get it right, and you are amongst a marginalized group, and it is your literal and figurative sanctuary, then you have the strength knowing that you can always come back to that to go out and fight the fight. And I think that's one reason we stay, because we want that strength of knowing that we have that safe space so that when we do go out into the world and get beaten up, we know we have that place to go back to. Well, I'm so grateful for both of you joining me to talk about this important topic. Um, How can people learn a little bit more about your church, Ellen? Where do you want to send people? I would love for folks to visit us. You can go to our website, opentableucc.org. We worship at the chapel at All Saints Episcopal Church at the corner of Government Street and Ann in Mobile, Midtown Mobile. And we're on Facebook, and um, we would love to welcome anyone. And Elizabeth, how can people find out about your writing? Because you've written a lot of articles on this topic, but also your franchise magazine. Okay, so for the advocacy and the personal writing, I have a website called thegiftofthestruggle.com, which talks about how gifted we are to have struggles to overcome and what we can learn from them. Um, And that includes the LGBT interviews that I've done. And then the magazine is thefranchisewoman.com. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So you've been listening to the FemSouth podcast. FemSouth is a local podcast that is dedicated to educating, empowering, and supporting women here in the South. Um, Before I close, though, I do want to give a shout out to a couple of organizations that I think are instrumental and are growing here in the Baldwin County. And those are Rainbow Mobile, which is located in Mobile, and Prism United, which is primarily located in Mobile, but is also developing some satellite organizations. And one has just sprung up in our area. And one of our FemSouth members, Sarah Rutledge Fisher, is the director of this organization. And I am proud that I've been able to come on board and be a facilitator for this group which is helping teens in our area, LGBTQT teens in our area. So if you are an LGBTQT plus teen in our area and you would like to have a community here to support you, please look up Prism United in Fairhope and join our group. Uh, If you know somebody that you think would like to participate, please let them know. So if you would like more information, you can reach out to us and we will put you in contact with Sarah. If you would like to learn more about FemSouth, you can go to our website at femsouth.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can read our blogs and some of our book reviews, which we need to get up to date on. I know we've had, we've read several books and I still need to put some, um, some information for those books up. But you can also see some of the events that are coming up that we host in our area, including our book club discussions and a new feature that we're promoting, which is Feminist Film Night. We're doing that every other month, which is really fun and exciting. So please reach out, get involved, especially if you live here in this area. Uh, You can also ask to join our private Facebook book club group which is a private community that talks about women's issues. And it's also where we discuss 
our books when we are sort of gearing up to have our book club discussions in the local area. So we would love to have you join and get involved and help lift women's voices up here in the South. Until next time, you're listening to Fem South. Thank you.